the words we just used in that uh, affirmation of faith, um, most of our members know by now, but just in case you don't, one of our longtime members, uh, Anita Garrett, is very sick the past few weeks, still is, and uh, she turned 94 this, this past, I believe it's Thursday, and uh, the sad thing is that her daughter Jan, who typically would accompany her to church and they'd sit over here, Jan also, while Anita was sick in the hospital, became sick, and she died that same day, Jan did. So Anita is uh, weak and really doesn't need visitors, but I'm sure cards or uh, things like that would, would, would be appreciated. Uh, there'll be a funeral sometime in the spring uh, of some sort when Anita has, uh, it has her strength enough to do that. I thought about that while we were reading that description of what the church ought to be. And we're going to look at a passage now as we come to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians that talks about how we should be as a new community, as a church. So I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's on page 962 in these Bibles in the pews, 962. As we've been uh, quite some time going through 1 Corinthians, and now we come to the final chapter, which I hope to divide into two sermons this week and next week, the Lord willing. This is about life in the new community. Just a reminder, we we spent several Sunday sermons on 1 Corinthians 15. That's kind of the the climactic point of, of 1 Corinthians. And it dealt with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And last week, if you were here, it we looked at the latter part of the chapter, which are the implications of Jesus' resurrection for us, that we as believers can look forward to when we will be resurrected. We will have resurrected bodies and how much hope that gives us. Now, I do want to remind you, when the New Testament letters were written, there were no chapters and verses. Okay, it was one letter. So when I say, all right, we're going to look at verses one and two, I mean, it was was one continuum. And we have First and Second Corinthians, but best we know, the Apostle Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians, but we only have two that have survived uh, because he makes reference to some other writings and so forth. But on the heels of this great teaching about the resurrection, you might think, well, what, what is the, what's the first application he's going to make? What's the, the next thing we should know when we think about the great truth of the resurrection and the hope that gives us? It has to do with taking up an offering, an offering that he's going to carry to Jerusalem to help the believers there. So follow along with me. I'll read through verse 9. Hear God's word. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many 
adversaries. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you take this very practical portion now of Scripture and apply it to our hearts in a very difficult area that we grapple with on a daily basis. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I, I had preached a sermon, and I don't remember the sermon, I, I, but it had something to do with financial stewardship. And a member of the church, an older member of the church, met me right outside, and he said, did you hear about the two men who had been close friends for many years? Uh, one of the men bought a brand new car, and he was driving that new car, and his friend, because he knew him so well and knew how much money he had or didn't have, Ask him, well, how can you afford to buy that car? And his friend said, well, it, it was really pretty simple. You see, the money I was giving to the church, I just decided I'd use that, and I went and bought a car. So I'm using that same money to purchase the car. And his friend thought, wow, man, I wish I could find a car that cheap. <laughs> That's all he said about the sermon. The subject of money and giving can be uh, confusing in the church. Some tend to think that's all churches talk about, and we're categorized that way, is always talking about money. Uh, that's really not true here. Probably I don't say enough. And maybe that's good. A number of years ago, after our stewardship season, um, some of the officers were reviewing what had gone on, and they said, you know, next year it would be helpful if Chip preached a whole series of sermons on, on giving. So I preached four sermons on giving, and the commitment number went down. <laughs> so I've stayed away from series on the subject. Um, so here's this climactic portion of 1 Corinthians, the resurrection. And right on the heels of that, now he talks about this offering, this offering that he wants them to give toward that that he, the Apostle Paul, is going to carry or send with some of their representatives to Jerusalem. So what I want to do today, Lord willing, is look at some marks of what the church should be in the area of generosity. And then next week, I want to look at the rest of the chapter on what the church should be in the area of friendships. Okay? So today, let's look at generosity. That's really the first four verses, and then the rest of the chapter is on friendships. What do we learn about generosity here that ought to be true in, in the church? Well, we should be a community that's generous. One of the most important ministries the Apostle Paul had during this, what was called his third missionary journey, was a relief offering, a special offering he was taking up to take back to Jerusalem to help the Christian brothers and sisters back in that city who were very poor. And he wanted this offering to achieve several purposes. Uh, at the Jerusalem conference in, in Acts chapter 15, we find that Paul and others had agreed to remember the poor, to always make it a priority to remember the poor. So he's keeping that, that commitment to remember the poor. And this was important to take up this offering to go back to Jerusalem for a number of reasons. I'll just mention a couple. One was that there had been a famine there had been a famine some time before, and the effects of that were still very much in play. When you have a natural disaster, as we've seen, major hurricane, or like what's happened in Puerto Rico, you've got man-made disasters and natural disasters, these things aren't solved in a week or month or even necessarily in years. And so even though the famine had been some time in the past, 
the people are still being affected in Jerusalem, and Paul is taking up this offering to go back and help them. But another reason, a second reason he wants to take up this offering is to help to strengthen the bond between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, whatever your experience with racism has been in your life, and growing up in America, for those of us that grew up in America, there's probably nothing we can compare it to between Jew and Gentile in New Testament days. I mean, that was a racial divide you did not cross. And it was directed, it wasn't one group just toward the other, it was both groups toward one another. They literally hated each other because if you were a Jew or if, or if you were a non-Jew. And many of the parables Jesus told dealt with that being an undercurrent. So Paul knew how much help it could be if these primarily Gentile believers in Macedonia and in Galatia and in Corinth gave an offering to go back and say, we love you. Our Jewish brothers and sisters in the city of Jerusalem, we want to help. There's no dividing wall in Christ. We are all one in Christ. So he had that as an agenda. And we learned some basic principles about giving. And first, I'm just going to go through these. First, that giving should be an act of worship. And I say that based on, and you could argue it, and, and that's fine, when he starts off in verse 2, when he says it should be taken up on the first day of every week, you should set this aside. What's important of the first day of the week? Today, in our calendar, what we call Sunday. In the Old Testament, God's people would gather to, they would assemble and they would observe the Sabbath on the last day of the week, the seventh day, what we call Saturday, as many Jews still today do. And so we see that the early Christians were meeting on the next day, the first day of the week, what we call Sunday. Why this change? Now, depending on what kind of church background you, you have, if you, if you come from a Seventh-day Adventist background, the Seventh-day Adventists teach that, well, the reason it was changed was a totally unbiblical, unchristian reason, and that is in the 4th century, Emperor Constantine, Constantine the Great, changed the Sabbath from Saturday, the last day of the week, to Sunday, the first day of the week. And is there any truth to that? And I would say, no, there's not. Constantine changed nothing. The Romans had no Sabbath at all. What Constantine did was that he declared Sunday, the first day of the week, to be a holiday, basically, that day upon which Christians had been observing for over 300 years. It, it's by the example of Christ and the apostles that the day was changed from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. Now, why did they change it? Well, we celebrate the first day of the week, the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth brought about by the resurrection of Christ. Christ rose on the first day of the week. He appeared to, wit to the women on the first day of the week. He appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus on the first day of the week. He appeared to Thomas and the other disciples in the upper room on the first day of the week. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the first day of the week. The Christian church began on the first day of the week. Sermons were preached on the first day of the week. Christians assembled on the first day of the week. The collections were made on the first day of the week. The Lord's Supper was observed on the first day of the week. The disciple John at the end of the book of Revelation 
he refers to seeing Christ on the first day of the week in John in Revelation 1.10. So it wasn't Constantine. It was already done by Christ and the apostles 200 years before Constantine just made it legal. Now this is also abundantly clear in the history of the church. Here are some what the early church fathers said about this. In, in A.D. 120, less than 25 years after the disciple John died, Barnabas writes, speaking of the Christians, they kept the eighth day with joyfulness, the day upon which Jesus rose from the dead. Justin Martyr, in the year 150 A.D., said Sunday is the day on which we all hold our communion assembly because Jesus Christ, our Savior, on this same day arose from the dead. And in the year 200, Tertullian wrote, we solemnize the day after Saturday in contradiction to those who name that day their Sabbath, namely the Jews. So Constantine only legalized that day. The Christian Sabbath is given to us as a day of worship, a day of rest, a day of gladness, a day of rejoicing. It's not a day to be somber and sad in and of itself. God has given this to be a great benefit and blessing to us. So he says in verse 2, do this on the first day of the week. For our purposes, when we come to our assembly, when we gather, then we should be prepared to give as an act of worship. We should have thought about that in advance and made preparation for us. And so when we give as an act of worship what should be true in our hearts, whether it's dropping something in the offering plate, it should be, God, everything I have is a blessing from you. I give now in gratitude and appreciation for all you do. This is, use this for your glory. This is my part of my worship. Secondly, giving should be systematic in verse 2. When he says, so that there will be no collecting when I come. He didn't want it to be an afterthought. He didn't want them at the last minute to say, oh yeah, Paul, you're here. We were supposed to take up an offering. Let me go home and see if I can find a couple of coins to, to give to you to take. No, he, he wanted it to be systematic. Now, my own experience, our own experience, Bar Barbara and I, we, we discuss how money will be used, but I'm the one that, I'm the accounting one more inclined to that, so I I pay the bills, I, I write the check, and write the check to the church. So I'm, I'm paid monthly, and it, this becomes a little problematic. I've tried to write checks where there'd be one every week, you know, but being paid monthly, I, I tend to do better in the whole area when it's, when it's once a month. But I confess, that's not the best way. It, it would be best to be weekly. But I find when I write the check at the first of the month, the, the check, our, our donation, our offering, our, our tithe and beyond to the church, then there always seems to be enough for the rest of the month. Unless there's just some unforeseen emergency. But when I pay everything else first and I procrastinate and wait a week or two or even three to write the tithe, suddenly there isn't enough there. I can't explain it. It may just be me. But I... I think there's wisdom here that it should be systematic. And there are times we should be impulsive and think, I think God wants me to give to this. We hear about an emergency need, something that, that happened yesterday, and we mean, need to meet that need today. So he's certainly not saying that's uh, not right to do. He's just saying normally giving should be systematic. Next, giving should be personal and individual. He wanted every church member there 
at Corinth. He wanted them all to participate. He did not reserve this just for those who were extremely well-to-do. He wanted all, regardless of their, their station in life, to participate. The same is true today. We can all give. Giving is to be proportional. In verse 2, when it says each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. God prospers us. Some may have prospered little in the past year. Some may have prospered much. And he's saying the more God has prospered you, the more you can give in a higher percentage, not just a higher amount. The Jewish believers would have been accustomed to the teaching of the tithe, which ranged from the minimum of 10% on up to 30% in the Old Testament. And that gets confusing in the New Testament. Let's just say if we take a 10% as, well, let's start at least where they were, at least where the Jews, without the full display of God's revelation, without seeing the Savior and the resurrection, all we know, the full, the fullness now that the mystery's been explained of the gospel that ours should be a minimum of that. Now, what are our, when you boil it down, what do you and I and most humans need? The Bible tells us we need food, clothing, and shelter. God created us where we cannot live without food. In, in certain climates, you can't live without clothing. And pretty much everywhere, you need some kind of shelter. Now, it's, some of us maybe spend too much in the area of food. Uh, now, the most extreme case, when I read the biography of a famous movie director, you know, wherever he was in the world on location, he would have food flown in from Paris for his meals. All right, now, that may be a bit extreme. I don't know if anyone here is doing that. But we may be extreme in the area of clothing or or shelter. We may have far more shelter or shelters than we need. Uh, I'll let you make that decision. But there's a problem we all face. I don't know anyone that does not face this. And that is, as we earn more through the years, if we do, as God prospers us more, we typically expand our standard of living, we incur more and more financial obligations, and as a result of that, we have less to give to God's work than we started with. So he keeps in mind, as God prospers you, he doesn't say you need, never does the New Testament condemn making God prospering a person. Even when Jesus told the parable of the man whose, whose fields gave a great you know, prospered him greatly, and then he said, well, what will I do with all this? I'll build more and more barns just to store it up. There was no condemnation, the fact that God prospered this man, and he made a lot of money. The problem was he left God out. He acted like it was just all for his benefit. Now, apparently this had happened in Corinth. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that giving Christian giving is an outflow of God's grace, that if we've experienced God's grace, we ought to then express it to others. Third principle, well, I don't know where I am now. The next principle, money is to be handled honestly. When he describes how when he comes, if you will pick a couple of people and then I'll send a letter with them, the various churches giving to this relief offering apparently appointed delegates to help Paul manage the offering and to take it safely to Jerusalem. Every ministry, including this one, should be totally above board, totally professional in its handling of money. I try never to handle the church's money. Some of you, from time to time, through the years, will 
some people have come up to me and said, hey, I wasn't in there when they took up the offering. Here's my tithe envelope. Will you take this and give it to the office? And I say, I really shouldn't handle money. There's a mailbox right in front of the office over there with a little slit in it. If you'll go there, you can drop it in there. It will go to the office. I just want to be careful about that. And the Apostle Paul was careful that he was always having to be on the watch because of those who would accuse him of stealing money. Well, did they respond? After this first four verses and they got this letter, did they do what Paul asked? Did they prepare the offering? No. Were these words wasted? No. But we know they did not respond because of 2 Corinthians 8. Without reading it now for the sake of time, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul has to readdress it. And he takes a different approach in 2 Corinthians 8. He talks about the Christian churches in, in Macedonia and how they, out of their poverty, had given because of God's grace for this offering. And he urges the Corinthians to do the same. Why does he mention the churches in Macedonia? Well, Corinth was a port city. We went through all this months ago. They were a city on, that was growing. The economy was growing. There was probably construction happening. You had merchants and others from all around the world coming there. So there, there was no recession, by and large, in Corinth like there was in Macedonia. In Macedonia, they were suffering. They were poor. Now, he doesn't say everybody in Corinth was wealthy, but apparently they were not struggling for food, clothing, and, and, and shelter. So in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, look what your Christian brothers and sisters have done. Over here, these people who have nothing, these people who have almost nothing, and they sacrificially gave because how much they appreciate God's grace, and he uses them, for example, to say, come on now, y'all should do your part. He doesn't say y'all, that's, that's what they spoke in southern Greece, I guess the Greek there. But he says, you should do your part. Now, what I want to take the last few minutes here and kind of have a family talk. If you're visiting today, uh, I never say what I'm getting ready to say. I'm going to talk about the church finances. And the good thing is, there's no campaign going on. There's no pressure. We did that back in October <laughs> when I tried not to preach on it so that you'd give more. Uh, the... You, there's no pressure. There's no building campaign. There's no emergency. So let's just relax. You know, I don't know any names. I've got some figures from the administrative office. So I'm just going to share with you some things. I think this first part you'll find very fascinating. There's a lot of confusion in the church today about giving. And a lot of that has come about in the past 20 years. And I hear it in the inquirers class. Because we've got new people to church, new people to this church, some brand new to the Christian life, some non-Christians... And they're asking, what's all this talk or talk about tithing? What is it? Why are we supposed to give money to anything? I don't get it. So I'll spend a, a lesson trying to answer that question. But here's, the, here's what's confusing in America right now. One of the issues in charitable giving and giving to the church is the proliferation of nonprofit organizations in the U.S., in 1995, there were five, approximately 500,000 501c tax-deductible nonprofit organizations. 1995. Now, let's just use a round figure of 20 years later. There are 1.1 million. It has more than doubled. So whereas some of us, my generation and those older, I was just taught, you give to the church. Why? 
That's just what you do. We should give as Christians, and you give to the church. And there were some parachurch ministries, many that ministered to me. But we really separated. When I was in seminary, I had, had a man tell me, he said, I give to God's work. I paid my kids' college tuition. First time I'd ever heard anybody mention something like that. And I thought, that is not, wait, that's not giving to God's work. But he was sincere in that. Now, it is very common, and I'm not trying to caricature anyone, but I would assume at least half of you probably think, I should give. As a Christian, I should be generous. So I'm going to give 2% to my local church. I'm going to do 2% to the youth center in my neighborhood. I'm going to do 2% to a boys club that's trying to help across town. And I'm going to give 4% to the college I attended. That is very common thinking. So it's, it's not that when you look at the national figures of, of uh, how much is given to charities, they are back and beyond a little bit before the 2007-2008 recession. So the figures have gone back up, but they're not going to the church. There are 370,000 Protestant and Catholic congregations in the U.S. And that proportion of giving to the 370,000 churches, as the 501Cs have doubled over 20 years, that number has actually gone down. So churches are receiving less. I think it's a mindset change. So that person that would say, I'm going to give 2% here, 2% there, 2%, 4% there, would look at me and say, they're all doing God's work. They're all helping people. What's wrong with this? If anything, it's a good question. It's a very good question. I think the Bible gives us some guidelines. I think it gives us some priorities in giving. And I draw this from a variety of verses, and it's not a lot-tight argument, but I think of Galatians 6.10, so when Paul wrote to them in Galatians and said, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So I believe the first priority in giving as a Christian, giving financially, should be to the household of faith. For most of us, that is the local church where we minister and are ministered to, where we are members. A personal example, which may mean nothing, but just for you to know, Barbara and I believe our first and best gift should be given to this local church. So at least the first 10% of our known income, our known income is committed here to the church. And there's several reasons. I believe that the vow that we take as members, you promise to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability, is, is one application. But especially, do you, do you promise to submit to the government and discipline of the church? I, I believe if the officers come up with a budget and they say, this is what we think we ought to do as a church, we're going to give this portion to that amount, we ought to spend this on this and that, then this is a form of me saying, I trust your leadership. I trust that y'all have prayerfully worked through this. You know more than I know about these various ministries. You know more about these missions and church plants and so forth, and you've decided that's where it should go, then that's, that's part of us being members here. And then the second priority, I think, he says, and as I read to you earlier in Galatians 2.10, remember the poor. 
So another priority is the poor among us in the household of faith. When there's an emergency within our own church, when someone loses a job or there's a health disaster or a fire at a house or whatever it may be, to me, this isn't a question of if, this is a priority. This person is a member of the household of faith. We should remember the poor and we're going to help. It may just be a temporary thing. It may just last for a few months. I had a person call me years ago, and at first it would sound like an offensive phone call to some, but in reality it was very mature. This person in the church called me and said, we are going through some difficult times. Is there any way the church can help us with one particular need? It's a real lean time right now, but God's going to prosper us. We think this will last so long, and at that time, we'll be in a position not only to meet our own needs, but to help others. Then we can give more, like to the deacon's fund. I thought, that is really a mature way. And I, I mean, as God has prospered us, and she was saying at this time, things are lean. Uh, we're going through a lot, and we, we, can't, we can't make ends meet. Now, the third priority after the household of faith and remember the poor is laborers for the harvest to send those out when jesus said look at the fields they are ripe and ready for harvest pray that the lord of the harvest would raise up laborers to go out it should be outward mission taking the gospel especially to the unreached now why do i put those priorities there for example we've been very involved in a number of places but one is haiti over the past 10 years that's not without controversy within our own congregation I had a woman, a very wealthy woman, one time tell me, I think this thing of sending money to Haiti is just ludicrous. It is throwing money away. And I said, well, first of all, it's designated. Secondly, we know the people on the ground. We know the guys we are sending it to. And by the end, she was somewhat, she was somewhat neutral. <laughs> She wasn't positive. She wasn't supportive. But at least she saw we're not just saying just, you know, we're going to throw money and, and, and lose. I said, we're putting it into things that are multiplying. And one is church plants. Now, they had church plants, schools, and orphanages as part of El Shaddai Ministries, that whole network down there. You've heard us talk a lot about it. You've heard Donnie St. Germain and his brother Louis St. Germain. Now, when it comes to church plant, when it comes to an orphanage, those are so needed. And you go down there, and I mean, they will just win your heart. But everybody will give money to an orphanage. Home Depot will give money to an orphanage. Lowe's will give money to an orphanage. Chick-fil-A and others will give money to orphanages. Who's going to give money to church plants? Only Christians. Am I making sense? I, I, I think then we begin to prioritize saying, okay, this is a great thing you're doing, but who's going to plant the churches? Only Christians are going to plant the churches. So we also then say there's a priority here that as good as these ministries are and we do support them and want to support them, we could give every dime to a mercy ministry and never see local churches started. Okay, what about our church? I ask our church administration some questions about the general things with our congregation. And I found it interesting, and you might too. At the end of 2017... We have to turn in a report every year to our denomination. In our report for 2017, we had 945 communing members. That's people that take communion, if you don't know that term. Then you add on the babies and children and those who've not yet made a public profession, and we're right about 1,150 members. 
1,150 members. Now, if we take that roster of 1,150, we have 552 families in the church. Wait a minute, that seems like, no, that doesn't seem right. Well, it is. Here's how we count a family. Any person out of college, single, married or not, is a family. So let's say there's a husband and a wife and they have two kids in college, that's one family. When one graduates, that becomes two families as far as giving. So our total number of family units, or to use administrative terms, giving units, is 552. Out of that 552, 314 give to the church or through the church. Now here's what I mean through the church. You may say, hey, I want to I give to a, a, a friend of mine who's a missionary in India. And I'm going to give it, but I want to give it through First Presbyterian. So I'll give the $100 and say I want it sent to that approved ministry that our church has approved and send it over there. So that's called a pass-through gift. No money comes to the church. And that's, so when you take the number of people who give to First Presbyterian or through First Presbyterian, it's 314 families out of 552. Now, of those 314 families who give, 89 of those families give $500 or less per year. Out of the 552 total families we have, 72 families, or 11%, give nothing to the church. 72 families, or 11% of our membership, gives nothing to the church. 20 families give designated gifts through the church, but nothing to the church. So you might say 92 families give nothing to First Presbyterian. Now, our total giving to and through the church last year was $2,815,000 and change. $2,815,000. Now, how was that used? It's it's easy. I'm going to give you some round numbers. 30% went to missions, church plants, campus ministries, evangelistic works, 30%. 50% went to discipleship, and equipping and teaching, and 20% went to maintenance and administration. 30% to you for a broad term, mission, 50% discipleship, 20% maintenance, administration. We have no building debt. We have no loans. Okay, there's no debt, and that's one reason that figures at 20%. So I want to give you a proposal. I want to give you an idea. If the 89 families who give 500 or less a year could give just an additional $20 a week, you do the math, that's about 1,000 a year. So if their giving went up from 500 to 1,500 to the church, that would be 92,000 additional dollars that could go to gospel expansion. If the families who give nothing gave just $20 a week, that would be even more, like 100000 So if you combine all that, I mean, it's 149 families who give nothing. If they gave $20 a week, that's 154000 Basically, the point is, 
if those two groups that give 500 or less a year or those that give nothing just gave 20 a week, we would be looking at $240,000. What I'm trying to say is what we can do together in a church far exceeds what we can do individually, even through small steps. Now, you may be saying, Chip, are you saying if the church had an unexpected windfall of a $250,000 or so, all would be given away? You wouldn't be voting yourself some big kind of raise for you and the other pastors? No, we wouldn't be doing that. I assume we'd probably take fifty to 60000 and repair our building over here that's 23 years old, that's leaking into the nursery and into the fellowship hall and into the classrooms. It was built with these joints, and they said every 20 years you're going to have to replace these joints, so, and it's going to cost, and we've gotten 23 years out of it. So we'd probably take the fifty to 60000 and repair those leaks, but then I think we'd probably take the rest of it and we could expand because each year our budget stays about the same. So we're contacted by a group. And they, like in Dublin, not Dublin, Ireland, Dublin, Georgia. For 30 years we've tried to plant a church in Dublin. Never been able to do it. The corporate group would be young people. They'd move there and say, we want a church. They'd get going with a Bible study, and then they'd get a job somewhere else and move away. Now there's a church planter there. Now there's a core group. Now we're in the best position to plant a church there. We don't have any money designated, best I know, in our budget right now. Not enough, if we have any, to help with that church plan. Wouldn't it be great to say, hey, for the next three years, we want to help them get off the ground? Let me close, um, and we'll wrap it up quickly. And I want to talk to you about a place called in Manchester, England. I got an email from the pastor early this morning. I would written him yesterday, but last... I told you uh, months ago that, that last May I'd had lunch here in Macon with a, with a pastor named Matt Waldock. Matt's in his young 30s, and he is a co-pastor of a church called City Church in Manchester, England. Manchester's the second largest city in England next to London. The larger metropolitan area has 2.7 million people. Now, he and I had lunch just days before the terrorist bombing in Manchester at the Ariana Grande concert there. And so we were in communication afterwards. Some of their people were there, but none were, were killed. And he told me about the church plant and, uh, and how he's co-pastoring that. And I mentioned to you in a sermon after I had lunch with him that they had 150 people in the rented facilities where there are, and they were 42 different nationalities. 150 people and 42 different nationalities or ethnic groups. Now they're up to 200 people, and I got a newsletter Friday, an e-newsletter from their church. He didn't know I was going to bring this up today, but I get this newsletter, and here's what it said about last Sunday, seven days ago. Last Sunday, City Church rejoiced as we baptized two new believers. Helen is a dancer and has been attending City Church for the past two years. She's been wrestling with why the world is not as it should be and was invited to church by a friend. Over time, she came to understand the nature of sin and the need for a Savior who loves her unconditionally. It was wonderful for us as a church and for her family, who are not yet Christians, to see her baptized. Sin Nee was also baptized last Sunday. She moved to Manchester last September to study medicine and profess faith soon after. Her family is very upset at her conversion, so please do pray for Cindy 
and her family that they too might come to saving faith. Now here simply is their vision. They're a reformed congregation. And he says, we want, or they say, we want to strategically locate new church plants so that all 2.7 million people in greater Manchester are within one mile of a gospel teaching church. What a vision. So they're asking churches to partner with them, not to support them, not to pay their light bill, not to pay the pastor's salary. They're wanting to bring interns and church planters on their staff to train them like for a year or two before they send them out to plant the other churches. They don't have the means now to pay those church planters for the training. So they're asking churches like us to partner with them over there. Corporately, we can do much more as a congregation than by ourselves. I'm just going to slam the brakes on. I feel I'm at the end of a luge run, and I'm just grabbing the rails and trying to stop before I hit the wall right now. Let's pray together. Father, you have richly blessed us. We need wisdom when it comes to money. It's never been easy for anyone, and we pray for guidance from your Holy Spirit individually and corporately as a church. Help us to be strategic. Help us to be generous. Help us to be wise. Uh, help us to be uh, frugal and to invest in places that are making the biggest, having the biggest impact on the kingdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.